Well, thank you for that, Gene. Um, how many of you found yourself tapping your toes a little bit, huh? Anybody? I bet you had both toes going. Anyway, thank you so much for that. This, this medley was called Medley on the Name of Jesus, which leads us beautifully into the text that we're going to look at today. Oh, let me give, begin with a little story. Um, one day, just last week, I was at the Del Nor Fitness Center, and I have a regular routine, go there four or five times a week just for exercise. So I was there just doing my thing, you know, riding away in a stationary bike like crazy, going nowhere. And I had my ear, little earbuds in. I was actually listening to a podcast by John Dixon called Undeceptions, which is very good, by the way. Um, when I became aware that a, a, a gentleman uh, was approaching my bike, walked right up to my bike, like right there, and, and looked like he wanted to say something to me. And I vaguely recognized the guy, um, not, not really a friend or anything, but I recognized him because I remembered like 30 years ago, I used to go to Geneva High School to play basketball on Saturday mornings, and he would be there. And since then, I've seen him like jogging in our neighborhood a couple times. And in all those years, I think I've had exactly one conversation with him. I don't know his name, but one conversation. Um, and I don't remember the conversation, but in it, I must have mentioned that I'm a pastor because he walked right up to my bike, I took my earbuds out, and then he said, um, pardon the interruption, but can you tell me the definition of a heretic? <laughs> I, was, I was like, I want, I, I, do you always start conversations this way? It was a little, just a little awkward and weird. He didn't say, hi, my name is, or you remember me? He said, can you tell me what a heretic is? And I recovered from the awkwardness of that moment enough to say something like, well, if you're asking in a spiritual sense, as someone who teaches something other that's, than what's in the Scripture. And he thought for a minute, this long, awkward pause, and then he said, that's very helpful. Thank you. And he walked away. That was it. <laughs> Never know. I thought of that story, I think, because we're continuing today in a series from Colossians called The Fullness of God. And most scholars think that Paul writes this letter, at least in part, to address a heresy that is a false teaching that was confusing uh, this young church in Colossae. A little bit of review. Uh, last week we said that Paul is writing this letter in about 62 A.D., uh, to a church in a city called Colossae that doesn't exist anymore, it's just ruins, it's, it's actually a tell, it's not been excavated. It's about 100 miles east of, what we, uh, of the ancient site of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. Uh, the church was evidently founded by a, a man named Epaphras, who served as leader and pastor, who had become a believer in Ephesus several years before when Paul ministered there for some three years. Evidently, Epaphras has contacted Paul through a letter or through a friend, or maybe even personally, to ask his advice on how to address and deal with this growing confusion in this young church. Uh, the heresy being taught by the group called the Gnostic Philosophers. And last week we saw that Paul begins his letter with a prayer for the Colossian believers that they would hold to the true message of the gospel. That's how he begins. And now today we take on the next portion of this, uh, this a fabulous letter, beginning in verse 15. So you can watch on the screens or look in your Bible. We're going to read verses 15 to 23 today, but we're going to do something a little unique. I'm going to have you help me in just a moment. I'll tell you when. Beginning in verse 15. Paul writes, He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let me pause here. Um, if there's any passage you want to try to memorize this spring, this is the one we want to point you toward. A beautiful passage, uh, one uh, that stands right at the center of our faith. In fact, it's so important, I want us to read it again, only this time I want us to read it together. So I want you to stand with me, and we're going to read this scripture together out loud as the church has for centuries. Join me as we read. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, biblical scholars pretty much agree across the board that that paragraph um, was one of, the, one of the earliest hymns sung in the early church. Uh, what they're divided on is whether that hymn pre-existed the letter to the Colossians and Paul is quoting from a hymn, or whether it was made into a hymn after Paul wrote this letter. Uh, I tend to think it's the latter, that Paul wrote this uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and it became a, a great hymn of the church. Uh, let's, let's continue verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, firm, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now before we dive in, um, I said last week that reading Colossians, and I hope you've been trying to read it through the week, preparing for Sundays, but reading Colossians is a little bit like drink, drinking from a fire hose. Uh, but this passage today is like drinking from Niagara Falls. It's even more so. And I want to say just a bit about the Apostle Paul. Uh, I think we, as a culture, here in the 21st century, suffer from something that I think you could call recency bias. That is, um, we have a kind of a historical snobbery in our culture, that we assume that human beings have been evolving continually over the centuries, and that somehow today we are smarter, wiser, more civilized than our ancient counterparts. I think Paul shatters that assumption. Here's a man who never saw an electric light, who never saw a computer, who never even dreamed of a car or an airplane, who uh, is never posted something on the internet, who's in prison, under house arrest, in Rome, painstakingly writing or dictating these letters to be sent to churches and church leaders all over the world, letters that had to be delivered by hand, which often took months. And yet, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he writes this. He writes this. One of the most soaring, breathtaking, beautiful passages beautiful collections of words ever written in any language. So I'm not sure we're getting smarter 
as the centuries go on. In fact, I heard a comedian the other day say that he believes the internet, especially social media, is gradually making our entire society dumber. I think there's some sad truth in that. I want to focus on three things that Paul says today about Jesus. His identity, his authority, and his work. First, the identity of Christ. It seems to me that um, even though we're living in a kind of post-Christian culture now in America, uh, there is a resurgence, a kind of cultural fascination with Jesus. Jesus as kind of a celebrity. Consider these examples of t-shirts that you can buy online. This one says, Jesus is my homeboy. I'm not really even sure what that means. How about this one? If you got a problem, yo, I'll solve it. This is Jesus as your personal assistant. Or how about this one? Do it like Jesus. Jesus as a workout motivator. Or this one, Jesus went fishing, be like Jesus. Right? <laughs> I knew it. I knew I was going to get one of those today. He's, Jesus is also featured in movies. Like there's a current movie out right now called The Gospel Revolution. Anybody seen it yet? I've heard it's pretty good. I haven't seen it yet, but I'd like to see it. It tells the story of, of the Jesus People movement back in the 60s. Uh, or the online series called The Chosen. Anybody watch The Chosen or learn how to do that on, your, on, on the app? If you haven't yet seen it, it's, I think it's very, very good, and I think you'll enjoy it. So there's kind of a renewed interest in and curiosity about Jesus, but who is he really? The Gnostic philosophers of Jesus' day were also very interested in Jesus. But they taught that since the spirit was good and matter was evil, Jesus could not have had a physical body. And therefore, he was a spiritual emanation from God and was only one of many emanations from God, one of many intermediaries between God and human beings. But listen again to what Paul says with that in mind. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. <coughs> Excuse me. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In that little paragraph, three things we need to see. First, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He is the image of of the invisible God, Paul writes. Now, the word uh, translated image here is the Greek word icon, meaning image or likeness or mirror-like representation. And if you recall back in our series from Genesis a few months ago, we saw that human beings, uh, the Bible says, are created in the image of God. That is, we bear a certain unique resemblance to our Creator, but that that resemblance has been marred, that image has been marred, by the fall into sin. And we no longer represent God in all his holiness, his goodness, his love. But notice here what Paul says. He's saying here, Jesus is not made in the image of God. He is the image of God. In John 1 we read, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who, himself, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now there are skeptics who say, well, Jesus' followers may have believed he was God, but Jesus never said that about himself. Uh, that's not true. In John 14, Jesus is speaking. He says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip, one of the twelve, said, Lord, show us the Father. That, we, that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone 
who has seen me has seen the Father. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews chapter 1, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So the New Testament as a whole, and especially Paul, are very clear. Very clear in making the astonishing proclamation that Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, who was crucified in the most shameful way possible, is, in fact, God. In other words, if you want to know what the invisible, eternal, creator God is like, look at Jesus. And by the way, that's why we recited the Nicene Creed today. You may have been thinking, why are we doing this? We don't usually recite creeds uh, at South Street, but we did today. Uh, the Council of Nicaea, which some of you may know, was held in 325 A.D. at the order of Emperor Constantine. He wanted to resolve a significant division in the church. In fact, several significant divisions that had developed in the church. And the main issue, what was called the heresy of Arianism, and that which taught that Jesus was neither divine nor eternal. And that needed to be clear up. So some 300 and some church leaders from all over the empire debated for nearly three months. And the result is what we recited today, the Nicene Creed. If you go back and look at it, it's very particular in the language it uses about Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit. That language was hammered out over a three months of time some 1,700 years ago by 350 or so church leaders. And since that council, Christians have universally held to the divinity of Jesus Christ. In fact, to be a Christian is to acknowledge and believe Jesus is God. Secondly, we see Jesus is the creator of all things. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Let me point out a couple of things here. That phrase, firstborn of all creation, has uh, been used by some, even many, the Gnostics being one group, Jehovah's Witnesses being another group, to say that uh, Jesus was important, but he was merely human. After all, it says firstborn of all creation. But this phrase, if we understand it correctly, how it's used in the rest of the scripture, is not a reference to chronology at all, as if Jesus was the first thing God created. No, it's a statement of rank or importance. It points to the supremacy of Jesus over all creation. Now, you might be asking, wait a second. I thought God created everything. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, it's a good question. Remember, Paul has already established that Jesus is God. And remember from Genesis, how did God create? He spoke. He spoke. He created through his word. He created through the word. The Apostle John writes, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then Paul takes John's thought a little bit further, saying that all things, meaning stars, planets, galaxies, giraffes, tigers, human beings, all things were created through him and then this, and for him. Which means, among other things, that you were created for him. 
The third thing we see is that Jesus holds all things together. I want to spend a little time here. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. To say he is before all things is another way to say Jesus is eternal. He's eternally existent, and the only being who is eternal is God, right? In fact, in John 8, Jesus is having a debate with the Pharisees uh, who are already looking for a way to get rid of him or do away with him or discredit him. And the conversation turns to Abraham. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they say back, well, you're not even 50 years old yet. You've seen Abraham? And Jesus says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And at that, they picked up stones to kill him. Because what they saw was blasphemy. Him claiming to be God. And of course, it was blasphemy if it was not true. But it was true. And then we see the phrase, in him all things hold together. There's an interesting law of science um, called Coulomb's law of electricity, which simply says, like charges repel. Now, we all know this. If you take two magnets off your refrigerator and you hold the positive ends toward each other, they they do what? They push apart. You You can feel the resistance. But here's the great mystery, that uh, at the nucleus of an atom is filled with protons, Protons are all positively charged. What keeps the positively charged protons from repelling against each other like the magnets do? What holds them together? Now, scientists call this the strong nuclear force. They have a name for it, but they don't know what it is. Clark K. Darrow was a renowned physicist at Bell Labs, not a believer, and he writes these words speaking of the physical nature of an atom. You grasp what this implies. It implies that all the mass of nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should never have been created. And if created, they should have blown up instantly. Yet here they all are. Some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. The nature of the inhibition is also a secret, one thus far reserved by nature for herself. So at the very micro level, and by the way, it takes roughly, roughly 10 million atoms can fit on the head of a pin. So at the micro level, there's a force, a power that holds atoms together that cannot be fully explained. But let's, take, let's back up and take a look at the macro level, the universe itself. Did you know that today, astrophysicists believe that between 85 and 95% of the mass of the universe is something called dark matter? Dark matter. Dark matter is a theoretical concept because it cannot be observed directly. It doesn't emit light. That you can't see it. You can only tell what it is by the mysterious impact it has on everything around it, the gravitational effect it has on stars and galaxies. Scientists refer to it as the glue that holds our solar system, galaxies, and clusters of galaxies together. Again, it's a force, a power that cannot be explained that holds the universe together. Maybe you see where I'm going with this. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a scientist. But what if, what if the strong nuclear force and dark matter are just scientific ways, scientific sounding ways to explain what Paul talked about 2,000 years ago, that Jesus holds all things together. He holds atoms together. He holds the universe together. He holds the church together, which I'll talk about in a moment. And he can hold you together. He can hold you together. Now you might be thinking, but Pastor Brian, you don't know what's really going on in my life. 
things have really come apart. I'm alone, I'm frightened, I'm in pain, I don't know what's happening, I don't seem to get answers for my prayers. But think for a moment about where the Apostle Paul is as he writes these words. He's in prison, under house arrest, awaiting a trial before the emperor of Rome, the man who in a few years will execute him. He's lost everything. He no longer has a home. He, he, he's, has, he's lost uh, his freedom. Everything is going wrong. But even where he is, Paul knows the presence of Jesus, he knows the peace of Jesus, and he knows the hope of Jesus because he knows who Jesus is. He holds all things together. Second thing we see in this paragraph is the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ. Pastor Jeff likes to tell a story. Uh, you may have heard him tell it several times. Uh, he tells a story from back in his football coaching days when he was volunteering as a football coach at Batavia High School. Uh, he had developed a relationship with a high school kid who was on the team uh, who was not part of church. And he just, over, over time, developed a relationship. And eventually, the young man said to Pastor Jeff something like, yeah, well, I guess I, I, guess I could use a little Jesus in my life. And Jeff said... Spur of the moment, well, yeah, he wants to be in your life, but he's not little. He wants to be in your life, but he's not little. I love that line, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, that word preeminent simply means to have first place. It means to be foremost, unrivaled, unequaled, unsurpassed, superior. Paul says Jesus is preeminent in at least three ways. First, he's the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Over the years, um, people sometimes say to me, hey, um, I visited your church, or what's going on at your church? And I try to remember whenever someone says that, to say, well, first of all, it's not my church. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to someone else. Uh, and there are a number of analogies or images for the church in the New Testament. There's, it's called a house, a family, a temple. But perhaps the most pervasive image is the body, the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. So when Paul says Jesus is the head of the body, he's saying Jesus is the leader, he's the director, the supreme authority of the church. Uh, this past week I heard a preacher say it this way. He said, a body, any body without a head is dead. And anybody with two or more heads is a monster. Run away. And the same thing is true of the church. The church stays alive. This church stays alive and thrives only if it has a head and only if it has one head. There is one head, and his name is Jesus. Secondly, Jesus is the source of life. It says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. Again, firstborn does not mean that chronologically Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. In fact, he's, there were three other resurrections from the dead before Jesus rose from the dead. You remember what, who they were, right? It was uh, Jairus' daughter, and then there was the widow's son in Luke chapter 7, and then there was uh, John 11, Lazarus, his friend. But all three of those were raised by who? By Jesus, and all three of them died again, only Jesus stayed risen. This is saying he is the firstborn, the most important, the most significant who raised from the dead. And any church that does not preach the resurrection, any church that does not preach Jesus crucified and risen again, is also dead. 
or is in the process of dying. Thirdly, we see Jesus is preeminent in everything. As I mentioned, the word preeminent is very intentional. Uh, the Gnostics thought of Jesus as one of many. Uh, many in our culture see Jesus as significant, as a, maybe a great teacher, as important. A recent poll, in fact, found that 52% of Americans today and up to 30% of church-going people believe Jesus was nothing more than a great spiritual teacher. But Paul here is saying that Jesus is not one of many. Jesus is not just interesting. He's not just inspiring. Jesus is not prominent. He's preeminent. He's preeminent in creation. Everything that is belongs to him. He's preeminent in the lives of those who follow him. He's preeminent in the church. And if you're a believer today, that means that Christ is first. He's first. He's first in your life. He's first in your marriage. He's first in your career. He's first in your finances. He's first in your family. And our problems begin when something else is first. Because Jesus is preeminent in all things. He wants to be in your life, but he's not little. And then there's the third thing we see here in this paragraph, and that is the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, the fullness of God is a theme for our whole series. Uh, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Paul uses this phrase at least eight times in this letter, the fullness of God. The word for fullness in Greek is pleroma, and is the favorite word of the Gnostics, actually. The Gnostic philosophers referred to the supreme being, what we would call God, as the pleroma, as the fullness. But that fullness was completely removed from the world, from human life. Because remember, only spirit was good, matter is evil. So the fullness is absolutely unreachable and separate from human life. For Paul, the fullness means the totality of everything God is, his character, his perfection, his holiness, his power, his love, all of it is in Jesus. And that Jesus makes that fullness of God available to us. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Here he's saying two things about the work of Christ. First, the work of Christ is cosmic or universal. He reconciled all things through his body and blood. The word reconcile just means to bring back to a former state of harmony, to re the restoration of a relationship that has been broken after a dispute. Basically, to turn an enemy into a friend. Paul actually uses a, an intensified form of the word that means completely or fully reconciled. Paul says Christ has reconciled all things in heaven and on earth. Now, what does that mean? It means that God's intent is to reconcile, that is, reclaim the entire fallen creation. Romans 8 
you remember, says the whole creation groans as in the pains of childbirth. The creation itself will be liberated someday from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Jesus is going to redeem, reconcile all things. Talking about the entirety of the created order, the universe. Question, what is it that accomplishes this reconciliation? Notice Paul says, the blood of his cross. Paul is saying that ideas don't reconcile. Philosophies don't reconcile. Jesus reconciles through his blood. Now Paul here is hammering away at the Gnostics who said that Jesus could not have had a physical body because matter is evil. He couldn't have been real. He only appeared to have a body. Paul is saying, no, no, no. Through his body and by his blood, that image is offensive to the world at the time, and offensive still in our world, by his blood, he has reconciled the whole cosmos, everything that it is. And secondly, we see this reconciliation is also personal. He says, Paul says, not only has, will Jesus reconcile all things, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Again, who does the reconciling? He has reconciled. God, through Christ, is the initiator and the finisher of this reconciliation. It's his work and not ours. Now, think about this just for a moment. This is Jesus, the one Paul has already said, is the image of the invisible God, the creator of all things, to whom all things belong. This Jesus is the one who is preeminent. And this Jesus doesn't sit back and wait for you to get your act cleaned up so he can call you his friend. He doesn't wait for you to get your life together, to prove you're worthy of being a relationship with him. This is Jesus who himself initiates and then finishes the entire work of reconciliation by his body, by his blood. Most of you have uh, probably heard of the Hatfields and McCoys. Here's a picture of the Hatfield family. Friendly look looking bunch. Uh, the Hatfield clan lived in West Virginia, right on the border of Kentucky. Uh, the McCoy family lived in eastern Kentucky, right at the border of West Virginia. Uh, and uh, I am actually related to this story. Uh, my mom grew up in the very county where a lot of these conflicts took place, Pike County, Kentucky. Uh, you can look it up. And one of her relatives evidently participated in this feud and might have actually been uh, pulled the trigger a time or two. In a nutshell, the conflict began at the close of the Civil War, lasted until 1891. And in those 28 years, somewhere between 13 and 60 members of these two extended families were murdered. Usually they were shot, sometimes stabbed. And the feud between these extended families has become the very definition of estrangement and bitter enmity. The Hatfields and McCoys. But did you know that in June of 2003... Some 112 years after the last shooting took place, leaders of these two families declared a day of reconciliation. You can, you can look it up. You can find it. In the presence of the governors of both states, Kentucky and West Virginia, and several hundred extended family members, they declared the following. We do hereby and formally declare an official end to all hostilities implied, inferred, and real between the families now and forevermore. And they have actually now turned that whole region into like a theme park. 
Paul is saying this is what Jesus has already done. Coming to faith in Christ means that no matter how long you've been estranged from him, no matter how long you've gone without speaking to him, no matter how far you've run from him, if you recognize who he is and what he has done, you can be reconciled. Without blemish, free from accusation, and holy in his sight. And that's good news. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word today. This ancient letter so full of truth and encouragement. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning or watching online who feels as if life is somehow just falling apart at the seams. Remind them today that you hold all things together and you can hold them together. Or anyone who feels far from you in some way, with fears that their failures have somehow disqualified them from relationship, from friendship with you. Remind them that you have already done what they cannot do. You have reconciled them to yourself. You have made them holy, without blemish, without accusation. So help them by your spirit and by your grace to receive and trust this great gift. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Crown him with many crowns, another great hymn that we get to sing in his honor. Uh, but just before the benediction, let me remind you of the concert coming up this Saturday evening, 5.30, here, right here in this room. Uh, join us, invite a friend to join you as well for the Burt Kettinger concert. We look forward to seeing you there. Receive now today's benediction. May we go now in the name of Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things, the head of this, his church, and the one who has reconciled you through his blood. Amen. Have a great day.